seminar, the Global Change Seminar. He's a Roger Bedard's been brought in with the, with the help of the new climate partnership. So thank them very much. And uh, it's also going to be great for uh, those of you that are here for the Coastal Processes class. Roger's going to talk about some things that are very pertinent to what we've already talked about. And uh, things that are very pertinent to several things that we will talk a bunch about, so we'll be referring back to this uh, in the near future. Roger is a mechanical engineer. Uh, he's the ocean energy leader for the Electric Power Research Institute. Research Institute. Ocean energy leader. That's a very cool title. Uh, I, I don't want to be a manager. Managers do, do things right. I want to do the right thing. Got something like 40 years of experience in developing new cutting edge technologies, or what have been cutting edge when he was doing them. Everything from rockets to robotics to Mars rovers, and now how to extract energy from tidal and uh, wave motions. And that's what he's going to talk to us about today. Thank you, Brett. Um, <clears throat> so, let me tell you a little bit about the Electric Power Research Institute first. We're the research and development arm of the electric utility industry worldwide. Uh, we have about a thousand different utility clients who can choose from any one of a thousand different research and development projects that we put in a portfolio every year. That's called the, the EPRI membership program, and those funders get access to the results from just the projects that they, that they fund. There's two programs at EPRI that are public benefit programs. One of them is the Global Climate Change Program, and then the other is the one that I started two years ago on ocean energy. Um, so we're about $300 million a year in revenues, of which 85% goes out to contractors and consultants. We're a program management house. Our, what we do is we talk to our utility clients, understand what their technical needs are, and put together research and development programs to satisfy those needs. Uh, about two years ago, in, in following the, what was going on in Europe, primarily the United Kingdom and Ireland, in terms of the development of machines to harness the energy from the waves and the tides, and the fact that nothing was going on in the U.S., and looking at the confluence of forces happening in the U.S. with the concerns of global climate change, the price of energy increasing, the volatility of natural gas, just felt like now was the right time to try to get an industry started in this country, to give ourselves another option to fill out our portfolio of energy supply alternatives. Uh, and so uh, here's a picture of a wave power plant off the coast of Oregon. And then here's a picture over to the right is a picture of a tidal plant um, in, in, in uh, British Columbia. What do, you think, what do you think about those power plants? Chris, you're supposed to ask me the question. I, didn't, I don't see anything there. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. There's so many aesthetic problems of doing anything in this country anymore that it seems the only things we can get permitted are things you can't see. So one of the neat things, I want to give you a bunch of other neat things about ocean energy, is that they're aesthetically, they hopefully get rid of the aesthetic issue, the not-in-my-backyard issue. So... Um, I want to leave maybe two, two major points to you today. One, I'm going to, as in my zone of comfort, talking on ocean energy, I want to leave you with the, the message that it's a significant resource in this country, and there's many different attributes to it that will provide benefits to our country, and that we really need to put in a little bit of investment.
to look at what the system environment interactions are and to answer the few open questions that exist about this technology to bring it into our portfolio. So it's, it's important that we that we do that. But just for Duke, I added another another part down here, uh, and this has to do with the movement. We currently have a carbon-based electricity system in this country. We obviously need to transition to a sustainable, non-carbon-based, and some every ideas on how to uh, do that, and the importance and the opportunity we have uh, of doing technology development over the next 10 years in fossil fuel energy supplies to allow carbon capture and storage. Okay, so what's my motivation here? Why am I doing this? And, and basically the motivation is that I believe that we need to have a diverse and balanced port portfolio. It's just like uh, you might have read stories recently about the Enron employees who unfortunately were forced to put all their retirement monies, their 401k monies, into Enron stock. And when the company went under, they, they're they really hurting their, their elder, elder years. So it's really good when you're planning a retirement portfolio, you may be not starting it yet or whatever, but when you do start it, make sure it's a broad and diversified portfolio. And energy, there's no silver bullet. There's no one solution that's going to provide all of our energy needs. So we really need to ha have a balance system. We have significant resources. The technologies to exploit those are available. So we started by evaluating the North American energy supply uh, by doing feasibility studies of ocean energy to see if we could make a case that in the future, if these technologies were developed and applied in North America, they would be competitive with other alternatives. And the answer was yes, we made a compelling case. And I'm gonna, I hope to leave you with that case. So since we made the case, we're not going to try to accelerate a, an industry, a new industry in, in, in this country to provide ocean, harvest ocean energy to make electricity. We've had, even though we've, our studies have been like a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, this is not big money. This is not big money stuff. I've developed the money mainly from public energy agencies in various states. There's not a federal program in, in, in ocean energy yet in, in our country. There is big time in the UK. Uh, but our little feasibility studies have had a big impact. Uh, just in the past two months, we finished our title study in May. In the last two months, there's been 26 applications by private investors for title plans. Nova Scotia Power, the mother of all title sites in North America, is in the Upper Bay of Fundy. They've been dreaming about using that resource for 100 years. So when, I, when we brought this new technology, this kinetic energy extraction technology to them, and, and, and showed them the feasibility of doing that, they announced a multi-million dollar project almost on the spot. And it was such a big time when I was up there in Halifax in May, the chief executive officer called a public meeting. 300 people showed up. And three TV stations and newspapers. As a matter of fact, it even made the front page of the Halifax Chronicle, the biggest newspaper in Halifax. And that's me on the bottom right. You can't see that. It's me there, and that's the chief executive officer. He gets the big picture, and that's Bill Clinton. He's always, you know, he's always going around trying to stay in the press, right? We can't forget he was an ex-president, can we? Um, private investors uh, have filed for the first U.S. wave power plant, first commercial wave power plant in Oregon, a site that we selected in our study two years ago. Lincoln County has applied for multiple wave plants, another county in, 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 
state of Oregon, and expect a few more coming up this year. Particularly, my I made a prediction, public prediction, that California will see a couple of uh, applications in California for wave power plants. Okay, I'm going to first talk about the resource. What causes wave? What, what makes wave? Well, we start with the sun, like most other things start, and the sun uh, is not evenly distributed over the surface of the earth because it's round, and so there's more solar intensity at the equator than there is at the poles. And I want you to remember this number here, this 300 watts per square meter. That's the very highest annual solar flux that exists on our planet, 300 watts per square meter. So that uneven global heating creates global winds. And as you can see here, the winds are primarily concentrated in what's called the roaring 40s, anywhere from 30 to 50 degrees north latitude and 30 to 50 degrees south latitude. And if you can see the little white behind there, you'll see that, you know, like the UK and the US, you know, is right in, the, you know, in, those, in those zones. So the waves blowing over a fetch or a long distance of ocean for a period of time starts building up little capillary waves and they get bigger and bigger and bigger and then they eventually categorize themselves out into, in, into swells, nice, even, uniform, rolling waves like we get in California where, where I'm from. Tidal is different. Tidal is caused by the gravitational interaction between the, between the moon, earth, sun system. So there's a bulge basically it's pulling the water towards towards the different bodies. Now let me give you a thought question. I've stood on the Golden Gate Bridge and I've watched the tidal flows flood and ebb. Um, and I was thinking the other day when I was in bed one night, I was thinking, gee, if I was on the moon and I'm hey, a really great telescope and I'm looking down over the Golden Gate Bridge, would I see the tidal flows moving in and out? How many people think I would? Nobody. One guy thinks I would. And he, he's the professor? <laughs> I, I would. I don't think I would. Because I think the bulge is stationary relative to the moon. And the earth is rotating under it. Give that some thought, right? <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> Everyone else knew, Brad. <laughs> okay. How, how do we measure wave power and tidal power? Well, the way we measure solar power is with a flat or a plate. And... and so over a year, the, 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 the most intense place on Earth, we see 300 watts and a square meter. With tidal, we take that plate and we orient it vertically and put it down into the water column and measure the kinetic energy, uh, energy force. So we get a kilowatts per square, or watts per square meter there. With wave, it's a little bit different. We, we, uh, we, we uh, calculate the energy going through a vertical plane per meter of wave crest width. So the, the wave flux is quoted in a, a power per, per linear dimension, a watt per meter number. So power per wave is the, is the significant wave height squared times the period, times a bunch of constants that turn out to be about point, point 0.42. <clears throat> okay, so if we look at these flux numbers now per map, First, look at tidal because they're nice big gray numbers. Uh, four, four really good places in, in North America. The best one, and mother of all, is up here in Minas Passage, uh, 4.5 kilowatts per square meter. Now compare that to the to the, the very best place all on Earth of 300 watts per square meter of solar. 
Brunswick, Tacoma Narrows, and the Puget Sounds good, Golden Gate where I live, uh, all in the Crooks Inlet, lots of, lots of good tidal sites there as well. Now the wave is going to be really good where you have a, a coast that's fit, a west, western coast with ocean to the, to the west and facing west where the winds are blowing from the west. Because then they can blow over a long fetch of ocean and build up the waves. So in the roaring 40s up here, uh, Alaska, British Columbia, Washington, Oregon, Northern California is really good. Down in Chile, really good. Um, well, I, and, uh, and the UK where all the technology, I mean, there's a reason why all the technology developments are happening in the UK and Ireland. a great wave environment there. Spain, Portugal, South Africa, the southwest coast of Australia. Those are the, those are the sweet spots for a wave. Now that's flux. Let's look at it in terms of the total energy resource, at least for the uh, on North America. So basically, tidal is not a big energy resource. It's just a handful of sites that are in the, the 30 megawatt average annual power range in Minas Passage up in Upper Bay of Fundy there's some big ones that are maybe as much as uh, as uh, a gigawatt of average annual power. So it's really big up there and in the US just just a handful of sites. The wave is more because we got a long coastline. So wave total for all coasts, all the coasts as shown here, these four these four areas is about 2,100 terawatt hours per year, broken up into more than half of it is in southern Alaska. Hawaii is pretty good. West Coast pretty good. East is very, very poor because it's, you don't have a lot of water to your west. You get the results of some storms out in the Atlantic coming, coming up and coming down. It's about one-third or so of the energy on the west coast. Uh, there's three different wave climates uh, that exist in the U.S., there's the one on the west coast, which is strong, uh, with high variability between the winter months and the summer months. We're up at 40 kilowatts per, per meter in the winter, down to five in the summer. East coast is uh, actually gets about 20 in the winter, down to just a couple of kilowatts in the in the summer. Hawaii is less variable, and the reason Hawaii is less variable is that they get the effect of the winter storms coming down in from the northern hemisphere. And then they get the effect of also in the, in the winter in the southern hemisphere, and their summer, the winter hemisphere storms coming up. So they have more of a, more of a, uh, a constant month-by-month -month wave power. And you can see some numbers along the top that give you some quantitative numbers. Tidal, uh, there's two, two different climates. There's the West Coast climate and the East Coast climate. This is for San Francisco. And so one day is, one day is right here. There's two floods and two ebbs in, in one day. Uh, there's a huge difference between the flood and the ebb, and that's in, in, in San Francisco. That's because the whole watershed of Northern California all flows out through that little constriction over which they built a famous bridge that's painted golden color. The, and also there's, a, uh, there's a, a, an inequality between the two semi-diurnal tides uh, on, on the West Coast. But on the East Coast, there's very little difference between flood and ebb, and very little difference between tide one, tide two, in, in any, any one day. So from a big picture standpoint in the US, electricity usage uh, consumption is like 4,000 terawatt hours per year. Uh, in, order to, in order to get that electricity, assuming an average of 33% energy conversion, we had to have started with about 12,000 terawatt hours per year. So total annual U.S. wave 
one-sixth of the total energy that's used to produce electricity today. Now, if we cover 25% of the coast at 50% efficiency, we'd get 260 terawatt hours per year, and that's about the level of energy that all of the hydroelectricity uh, plants in the U.S. provide, about 7%, about 7% of the uh, total U.S. electricity. And as you can see, renewables is very, very small, almost non, almost non, non-existent today. I mean, basically, well, new, new, new renewables, not old. This is old renewables. This is new renewables. So less than half percent of wind and less than what twenty percent or something of uh, solar PV. Very, 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 very small. <coughs> so what are the key attributes? So the key attributes for wave, very high power density. It's forecastable. Uh, the dispatchers who have to make sure that they provide enough generation of electricity to meet the load on a second-by-second second basis, they want to know that they're going to have power next hour or the next day. And so, have, and so you know, with baseload fossil fuel plants, you know, they, they know it's there. With renewable energy, it's a lot different situation. It, you don't know whether you're going to have it the next day. Well, with wave, you, know, you can forecast it to a few days. If there's a storm off the Sea of Japan, you know, it's, the swells are going to hit the West Coast in about three days. And also, we have buoys, measurement buoys, out a couple hundred miles out in the ocean. So we can actually measure the energy about six hours before it hits the coast. <coughs> I already talked about the aesthetic issue, and, and it's a significantly large resource. For tile, again, high power density, there it's totally predictable. Unfortunately, it, the peaks uh, change by 50 minutes every day. So its peaks keep on changing day after day after day. So you can't always match it to the peaks of demand. But I think smart dispatchers with their computers can figure out ways to effectively utilize that in the, in the grid dispatch system. It minimizes aesthetics. It's a small resource in the U.S., but it's potentially very large in the last state of Canada. The key benefits are creation of jobs and improved local economy. I, I tell people, I shouldn't say this, but I will anyway. I tell people this is the first war we're in since the Civil War, where we're, we're funding both sides of the war. I mean, our oil money, is, let's face it, is funding the other side of the war. And, and, you know, we really need to start sending less money to the, to the you know, Middle East. So we can use an indigenous resource and keep the wealth here and, and create jobs for our own people at the same time. Because these, these machines are big. They're going to be built, built locally, and they're going to be operated and maintained locally. No emission, it's totally green. I think from an environmental standpoint, it's going to show to be a relatively environmentally benign electricity generation technology and reduces our, our dependence and hedges against future uh, fuel price future fuel price volatility. Okay, let me move from the resource into the conversion. There's four general ways of converting wave energy. The point absorber, the oscillating water column, the attenuator and the overtopping device. So here, simply, you've got mechanical up and down motion. You use that motion and convert it into, into rotary motion to turn a generator, typically done through pneumatic uh, energy conversion or hydraulic energy conversion. This Oregon State University is working on direct direct drive, going directly from linear motion to, uh, to ele- electricity. This is oscillating water column. If you've been to a blowhole beach in Hawaii, those lucky enough to have gone to Hawaii, you could have gone to a blowhole beach where there's a, a hole on the top of a cave, and when the wave comes in, it compresses the air, and blows the air out, and when the, the 
wave recedes, it sucks the air back down. You put an air turbine there, and you let that air turn that air turbine. It turns the generator and makes electricity. Attenuator here, this is an articulated uh, device that has power modules in each of the joints with hydraulic, uh, hydraulic pistons in, in each of the joints that, that uh, react to the, the uh, relative motion of each of the joints. And this is an overtopping device, basically a floating bathtub that the waves come up around, fill in the fill in the bathtub. The bathtub's a couple of meters over the sea surface. When it gets filled out, they release it through conventional hydroelectric generators. Each of these types, each of these principles have been put into practice, and these are machines that actually do this. This is a, the only U.S. wave company in New Jersey, Ocean Power Technologies. This is a, a, a boy installed in Hawaii at Taniyoi Marine Base. They have projects to install them in Oregon and one in Spain and one in France. This is the Palamas device. This Palamas is Greek for sea snake. This is that articulated device. It's 120 meters long by five meters diameter. Uh, this has been installed in, in uh, Scotland for over two years. The first commercial wave plant was announced last summer in Portugal. Uh, 38 megawatts of these devices. This is the the uh, this is the, um, <laughs> the the blowhole. That's the blowhole. Except this is not a cave. They built the cave out of steel, and they still support it on legs. It's about it's in about 20 feet of water. And when the wave comes in this way, it compresses the air, and this chamber blows the air out through the air turbine. That this is installed in Australia, and this is that uh, overtopping device it's called the Wave Dragon. It's installed in uh, Denmark. There's also four different types of tidal devices. There's the conventional <coughs> horizontal axis, much like your online wind machine. There's the vertical axis. Uh, if you're familiar with the Darius types of wind machines that were looked at 25 years ago, there's a Venturi. You put it through a nozzle. You reduce the pressure here. You suck. You suck air. From, from the atmosphere down down to here through an air turbine and then an oscillating flapper type device there. And there's been machines implemented of these four. And this first one is the most mature of the devices, the horizontal axis device. Looks like a wind machine in water. It's raised here because this is a prototype, one of a kind. They wanted to inspect it frequently, so it's just cheaper to, to put it on a rail and inspect it frequently rather than having to have divers or a big crane to, to, uh, get, to uh, get it out of, out of the water. So this is an 8 meter diameter, uh, 300 kW unit that's been operating in the UK for three years. This is a Venturi type of device here, just put in a river in the UK. This is a terrible picture of the first vertical, vertical oscillating device. Uh, Professor Boloff is a Russian uh, scientists at Northeastern University that developed a, a circular blade rather than a straight blade. And this is an oscillating flapper made by a company in the UK engineering business. And they're, they're now out of business. They built this device and found it was not economical, so they went back to their old business. So the status of the technology is a handful of engineering units have been tested for a few years. First commercial waste sale occurred last year in Portugal. And uh, it, here, here's the tube being assembled and ready to be towed from where it was built in Ireland to the test site in Portugal. Uh, tidal devices, many barge and tow tests of devices, but only one uh, seabed fixed test, and that's the one I showed you, this one right here, called the Seaflow, made by Marine Current Turbines of the UK. 
this technology leverages the, the 50,000 megawatts of wind machines that have been built. It's basically a little wind machine on steroids. It has to be more robust because the forces and torques are much, much greater. Um, so first, one megawatt class machines are being built now. They're going to be tested at the European Marine Energy Center in Scotland. And in fact, on Monday I was here at the East River uh, in Manhattan, the, the very first US uh, title project. In fact, it's actually, it's the first worldwide, it's the first tidal water turbine that's going to be connected to the grid. It's the first array of turbines. They're putting in six turbines. And it's the first full environmental testing. They have sophisticated acoustic dopplers that will be looking at, tra at the trajectory of every fish. The purpose is to look at the fish device interactions. Do they get do they get attracted to these devices and swim right into them, or do they get, do they can they recognize that it's a hazard and swim away from them? Do they go over them, under them, through them? What do they do? We don't we don't know. So this is the purpose of this. These six the hardware is all built. They're going to be installed this year. The purpose of this test is they're going to look at the trajectory of every single fish in, in the East River. Now, there may not be a lot of fish in the East River. But we'll, we'll, I, I told them, hey, if there's no fish, you spend a million dollars on the instrumentation. Look, I'll send some salmon over from the West Coast. Stock the East River with fish. We need to have fish. So this is that uh, Palamas device. And... Um, You know, uh, maybe I, uh, does anyone know, any, any computer geeks here that can tell me whether I can do a, a video from the uh, slideshow or do I need to be back to the, maybe I need to be back. Depends on how it's put in there. Yeah, I don't know. I, I normally do it from PowerPoint. Now I can't find out where I am. Try clicking on it and see if it goes. I did. I, I well in the, in the slide in the uh, slideshow you don't even have an icon, right? So let me let me just, just get rid of that because I know I know how to do it this way. There we go. Okay, so you can get an idea there for the how each of the tubular sections uh, move relative to the other uh, other section. So here it's being towed here to its uh, to its. Uh, from its fabrication site to its operational site. Okay, so let me next talk about plant design uh, and uh, cost and economics. Uh, first, I want to cover a few attributes. What makes a good, uh, I want to pick title. What makes a good title site? Well, you need to have moving mass of water. And you want to have a big mass, and you want that mass to be moving real fast because power goes by the, by the velocity cube. So, big mass, moving fast. You want, to you want to have a ease of connection into the into the grid. Uh, you want the the uh, transmission dis distribution grid to be nearby, and you want it to have the capacity to accept an injection of new power at that at that point. That's pretty rare, but there are some unique situations in the country for the first plants where where we have found that to be true. Uh, environmental concerns and showstoppers, like for example. A showstopper would be if it's a channel that's dredged all the time. Uh, that ain't very good. Another one we found up in up in Alaska, northern Canada, is they get this thing called beach ice. On the shore, they get the ice forms, and it forms with sediment, with sand. 
and it gets pretty heavy. And so during spring breakup, huge pieces break up and they come roaring down the river and, and they knock out piers and anything in its way. So there's just, I don't know any solutions to those. Those are, those are probably show signs. You want local public and political support because with renewables, any, any one person can, can stop a multi-million dollar project. And you want nearby harbor, harbor to support employment and, and servicing. <coughs> uh, you're gonna be concerned if it's a navigation channel, like under the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, it's a major navigation, navigation channel. The biggest container ships and tanker ships come in there. Uh, but fortunately, under the Golden Gate Bridge, it's 300 feet deep. So we're going to put them deep. Uh, you have to care about where fishermen fish, where crabbers crab, where kelp farmers farm, um, where recreational boaters want to be. You just got to, you know, you got to worry about about marine protected areas. Um, you just have to have to deal with lots of different public and political organizations to make. And, and your siting to make sure you, 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 know, you pick a site where you minimize the conflicts of sea space. <coughs> you care about the bathymetry, the geotechnical properties of the seabed. You want to be in bedrock, for example. Have a really nice, firm foundation for these devices because there's a large force on, them, on these devices. And you want to look for un unique opportunities. Places where you have existing easements for the transmission cable, uh, you know, if you're building a breakwater, for example, a new breakwater, boy, I would scream at the top of my lungs, hey, you're, you're absorbing the energy, why don't you convert it to electricity? You're doing it anyway, you're absorbing the energy anyway. Local public uh, advocacy is, is really important. So those are some of the things that, makes, that make a good site. So we did um, commercial plant designs at a number of different sites, and 